0: Chapter twenty seven, part B of the Mystery of the Yellow Room. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan The Mystery of the Yellow Room by Gaston Leroux. Chapter twenty seven, part B. That revelation staggered me. I tried to regain my balance by going over the evidence previously traced but which had diverted my mind and led me away from Frédéric Larson. What were these evidences? First, I had seen the unknown in Mademoiselle Stangerson's chamber. On going to Frédéric Larson's room, I had found Frédéric sound asleep. Second, the ladder. Third, I had placed Frédéric Larson at the end of the off-turning gallery and had told him that I would rush into Mademoiselle Stangerson's room to try to capture the murderer. Then I returned to Mademoiselle Stangerson's chamber, where I had seen the unknown. The first evidence did not disturb me much. It is likely that, when I descended from my ladder, after having seen the unknown in Mademoiselle Stangerson's chamber, Larson had already finished what he was doing there. Then, while I was re-entering the chateau, Larsan went back to his own room, and, undressing himself, went to sleep. Nor did the second evidence trouble me. If Larsan were the murderer, he could have no use for a ladder. But the ladder might have been placed there to give an appearance to the murderer's entrance from without the chateau, especially as Larsan had accused Darzac, and Darzac was not in the chateau that night. Further, the ladder might have been placed there to facilitate Larsan's flight in case of absolute necessity. But the third evidence puzzled me altogether. Having placed Larsan at the end of the off turning gallery, I could not explain how he had taken advantage of the moment when I had gone to the left wing of the chateau to find Monsieur Stangerson and Daddy Jacques to return to Mademoiselle Stangerson's room. It was a very dangerous thing to do. He risked being captured and he knew it, and he was very nearly captured. He had not had time to regain his post, as he had certainly hoped to do. He had then a very strong reason for returning to his room. As for myself, when I sent Daddy Jacques to the end of the right gallery, I naturally thought that Larson was still at his post. Daddy Jacques, going to his post, had not looked when he passed to see whether Larson was at his post or not. What, then, was the urgent reason which had compelled Larson to go to the room a second time? I guessed it would be some evidence of his presence there. He had left something very important in that room. What was it? And had he recovered it? I begged Madame Bernier, who was accustomed to clean the room to look, and she found a pair of eyeglasses. This pair, Monsieur Président and Rouletabille, drew the eyeglasses, of which we know from his pocket. When I saw these eyeglasses, he continued, I was utterly nonplussed. I had never seen Larson wear eyeglasses. What did they mean? Suddenly I exclaimed to myself, I wonder if he is long-sighted. I had never seen Larson write. He might, then, be long-sighted. They would certainly know at the Surté. "'and also know if the glasses were his. "'Such evidence would be damning. "'That explained Larson's return. "'I know now that Larson, or Bolmeyer, is long-sighted, "'and that these glasses belong to him. "'I now made one mistake. "'I was not satisfied with the evidence I had obtained. "'I wished to see the man's face. "'Had I refrained from this, "'the second terrible attack would not have occurred.' But, asked the president, why should Larsan go to Mademoiselle Stangerson's room at all? Why should he twice attempt to murder her? Because he loves her, Monsieur President. That is certainly a reason, but-it is the only reason. He was madly in love, and because of that and other things, he was capable of committing any crime. Did Mademoiselle Stangerson know this? Yes, monsieur but she was ignorant of the fact that the man who was pursuing her was Frédéric Larsan. Otherwise, of course, he would not have been allowed to be at the chateau. I noticed, when he was in her room after the incident in the gallery, that he kept himself in the shadow, and that he kept his head bent down. He was looking for the lost eyeglasses. Mademoiselle Stangerson knew Larsan under another name. M. Darzac, as the president, Did Mademoiselle Stangerson in any way confide in you on this matter? How is it that she has never spoken about it to anyone? If you are innocent, she would have wished to spare you the pain of being accused. Mademoiselle Stangerson told me nothing, replied Monsieur Darzac. Does what this young man says appear probable to you? the President asked. Mademoiselle Stangerson has told me nothing, he replied stolidly. How do you explain that on the night of the murder of the keeper, the president asked, turning to Rouletabille, the murderer brought back the papers stolen from Monsieur Stangerson? How do you explain how the murderer gained entrance into Mademoiselle Stangerson's locked room? The last question is easily answered. A man like Larsan or Bollmeyer could have had made duplicate keys. As to the documents, I think Larson had not intended to steal them at first. Closely watching Mademoiselle with the purpose of preventing her marriage with Monsieur Robert d'Arzac, he one day followed her and Monsieur into the Grand Magasin de la Louvre. There he got possession of the reticule which she lost or left behind. In that reticule was a key with a brass head. He did not know there was any value attached to the key till the advertisement in the papers revealed it. He then wrote to Mademoiselle, as the advertisement requested. No doubt he asked for a meeting, making known to her that he was also the person who had for some time pursued her with his love. He received no answer. He went to the post-office, and ascertained that his letter was no longer there. He had already taken complete stock of Monsieur Darzac, and, having decided to go to any length to gain Mademoiselle Stangerson, he had planned that whatever might happen, M. Darzac, his hated rival, should be the man to be suspected. I do not think that Larson had as yet thought of murdering Mademoiselle Stangerson. But whatever he might do, he made sure that M. Darzac should suffer for it. He was very nearly of the same height as M. Darzac, and had almost the same sized feet— it would not be difficult to take an impression of M. Darzac's footprints, and have similar boots made for himself. Such tricks were mere child's play for Larson, or a ball Receiving no reply to his letter, he determined, since Mademoiselle Stangerson would not come to him, that he would go to her. His plan had long been formed. He had made himself master of the plans of the chateau and the pavilion so that, one afternoon, while M. and Mademoiselle Stangerson were out for a walk, and while Daddy Jacques was away, he entered the latter by the vestibule window. He was alone, and being in no hurry, he began examining the furniture. One of the pieces, resembling a safe, had a very small keyhole. That interested him. He had with him the little key with the brass head, and associating one with the other... He tried the key in the lock. The door opened. He saw nothing but papers. They must be very valuable to have been put away in a safe, and the key to which to be of so much importance. Perhaps the thought of blackmail occurred to him as a useful possibility in helping him in his designs on Mademoiselle Stangerson. He quickly made a parcel of the papers and took it to the laboratory in the vestibule. Between the time of his first examination of the pavilion and the night of the murder of the keeper, Larsan had had time to find out what those papers contained. He could do nothing with them, and they were rather compromising. That night he took them back to the chateau. Perhaps he hoped that, by returning the papers, he might obtain some gratitude from Mademoiselle Stangerson. But whatever may have been his reasons... He took the papers back, and so rid himself of an encumbrance. Rouletabille coughed. It was evident to me that he was embarrassed. He had arrived at a point where he had to keep back his knowledge of Larson's true motive. The explanation he had given had evidently been unsatisfactory. Rouletabille was quick enough to note the bad impression he had made. For turning to the President, he said— and now we come to the explanation of the mystery of the yellow room. A movement of chairs in the court, with a rustling of dresses, and an energetic whispering of hush, showed the curiosity that had been aroused. "'It seems to me,' said the President, "'that the mystery of the yellow room, Monsieur Rouletabille, is wholly explained by your hypothesis. Frédéric Larson is the explanation. We have merely to substitute him for Monsieur Robert d'Arzac.' Evidently, the door of the yellow room was open at the time Monsieur Stangerson was alone, and that he allowed the man who was coming out of his daughter's chamber to pass without arresting him, perhaps at her entreaty to avoid all scandal. "'No, Monsieur President,' protested the young man. "'You forget that, stunned by the attack made on her, Mademoiselle Stangerson was not in a condition to have made such an appeal.' "'nor could she have locked and bolted herself in her room. "'You must also remember that Monsieur Stangerson has sworn that the door was not open. "'That, however, is the only way in which it can be explained. "'The yellow room was as closely shut as an iron safe. "'To use your own expression, it was impossible for the murderer "'to make his escape, either naturally or supernaturally. "'When the room was broken into, he was not there.' "'He must, therefore, have escaped.' "'That does not follow.' "'What do you mean?' "'There was no need for him to escape, if he was not there.' "'Not there?' "'Evidently not. "'He could not have been there, if he were not found there.' "'But what about the evidences of his presence?' asked the President. "'That, Monsieur President, is where we have taken hold of the wrong end.' From the time Mademoiselle Stangerson shut herself in the room to the time her door was burst open, it was impossible for the murderer to escape. He was not found, because he was not there during that time. But the evidences! They have led us astray. In reasoning on this mystery, we must not take them to mean what they apparently mean. Why do we conclude the murderer was there? Because he left his tracks in the room? Good. But— May he not have been there before the room was locked? Nay, he must have been there before. Let us look into the matter of these traces, and see if they do not point to my conclusion. After the publication of the article in De Matin, and my conversation with the examining magistrates on the journey from Paris to Epinay-sur-Orge, I was certain that the yellow room had been hermetically sealed, so to speak, and— that consequently the murderer had escaped before Mademoiselle Stangerson had gone into her chamber at midnight. At the time I was much puzzled. Mademoiselle Stangerson could not have been her own murderer, since the evidences pointed to some other person. The assassin, then, had come before. If that were so, how was it that Mademoiselle had been attacked after, or rather that she appeared "'to have been attacked after. "'It was necessary for me "'to reconstruct the occurrence "'and make of it two phases, "'each separated from the other "'in time by the space of several hours. "'One phase in which Mademoiselle Stangerson "'had really been attacked, "'the other phase in which "'those who heard her cries "'thought she was being attacked. "'I had not then examined the yellow room. "'What were the marks?' On mademoiselle Stangerson. There were marks of strangulation, and the wound from a hard blow on the temple. The marks of strangulation did not interest me much. They might have been made before, and mademoiselle could have concealed them by a collarette, or any similar article of apparel. I had to suppose this the moment I was compelled to reconstruct the occurrence by two phases. Mademoiselle Stangerson had, no doubt, her own reason for so doing, since she had told her father nothing of it, and had made it understood to the examining magistrate that the attack had taken place in the night, during the second phase. She was forced to say that, otherwise, her father would have questioned her as to the reason for having said nothing about it. But I could not explain the blow on the temple. I understood it even less when I learned that the mutton-bone had been found in her room." She could not hide the fact that she had been struck on the head, and yet that wound appeared evidently to have been inflicted during the first phase, since it required the presence of the murderer. I thought Mademoiselle Stangerson had hidden the wound by arranging her hair in bands on her forehead. As to the mark of the hand on the wall, that had evidently been made during the first phase, when the murderer was really there all the traces of his presence had naturally been left during the first phase—the mutton-bone, the black footprints, the basque cap, the handkerchief, the blood on the wall, on the door, and on the floor. If those traces were still all there, they showed that Mademoiselle Stangerson, who desired that nothing should be known, had not had time yet to clear them away. This led me to the conclusion that the two phases had taken place one shortly after the other. She had not had the opportunity, after leaving her room and going back to the laboratory to her father, to get back again to her room and put it in order. Her father was all the time with her, working, so that, after the first phase, she did not re-enter her chamber till midnight. Daddy Jacques was there at ten o'clock, as he was every night but he went in merely to close the blinds and light the night-light. Owing to her disturbed state of mind, she had forgotten that Daddy Jacques would go into her room, and had begged him not to trouble himself. All this was set forth in the article in the matin. Daddy Jacques did go, however, and in the dim light of the room saw nothing. Mademoiselle Stangerson must have lived some anxious moments, while Daddy Jacques was absent. But I think she was not aware that so many evidences had been left. After she had been attacked, she had only time to hide the traces of the man's fingers on her neck, and to hurry to the laboratory. Had she known of the bone, the cap, and the handkerchief, she would have made away with them after she had gone back to her chamber at midnight. She did not see them, and undressed by the uncertain glimmer of the nightlight— She went to bed, worn out by anxiety and fear, a fear that had made her remain in the laboratory as late as possible. My reasoning had thus brought me to the second phase of the tragedy, when Mademoiselle Stangerson was alone in the room. I had now to explain the revolver shots fired during the second phase. Cries of help, murder, had been heard. How to explain these? As to the cries, I was in no difficulty. Since she was alone in her room, these could result from nightmare only. My explanation of the struggle and noise that were heard is simply that in her nightmare she was haunted by the terrible experience she had passed through in the afternoon. In her dream, she sees the murderer about to spring upon her, and she cries, Help! Murder!— Her hand wildly seeks the revolver she had placed within her reach on the night-table by the side of her bed, but her hand, striking the table, overturns it, and the revolver, falling to the floor, discharges itself, the bullet lodging in the ceiling. I knew from the first that the bullet in the ceiling must have resulted from an accident. Its very position suggested an accident to my mind, and so fell in with my theory of a nightmare. I no longer doubted that the attack had taken place before mademoiselle had retired for the night. After wakening from her frightful dream and crying aloud for help, she had fainted. My theory, based on the evidence of the shots that were heard at midnight, demanded two shots, one which wounded the murderer at the time of his attack, and one fired at the time of the nightmare. The evidence given by the Berniers before the examining magistrate was to the effect that only one shot had been heard. Monsieur Stangerson testifies to hearing a dull sound first, followed by a sharp ringing sound. The dull sound I explained by the falling of the marble-topped table. The ringing sound was the shot from the revolver. I was now convinced I was right. The shot that had wounded the hand of the murderer, and had caused it to bleed, so that he left the bloody imprint on the wall, was fired by Mademoiselle in self-defense, before the second phase, when she had been really attacked. The shot in the ceiling, which the Berniers heard, was the accidental shot during the nightmare. I had now to explain the wound on the temple. It was not severe enough to have been made by means of the mutton-bone." and Mademoiselle had not attempted to hide it. It must have been made during the second phase. It was to find this out that I went to the yellow room, and I obtained my answer there. Roultabé drew a piece of white folded paper from his pocket, and drew out of it an almost invisible object which he held between his thumb and forefinger. This, Monsieur President, he said, is a hair, a blonde hair, "'stained with blood. "'It is a hair from the head of Mademoiselle Stangerson. "'I found it sticking to one of the corners of the overturned table. "'The corner of the table was itself stained with blood, "'a tiny stain, hardly visible. "'But it told me that on rising from her bed, "'Mademoiselle Stangerson had fallen heavily "'and had struck her head on the corner of its marble top. "'I still had to learn.' in addition to the name of the assassin, which I did later, the time of the original attack. I learned this from the examination of Mademoiselle Stangerson and her father, though the answers given by the former were well calculated to deceive the examining magistrate. Mademoiselle Stangerson had stated very minutely how she had spent the whole of her time that day. We established the fact that the murderer, "'had introduced himself into the pavilion between five and six o'clock. "'At a quarter past six, the professor and his daughter had resumed their work. "'At five, the professor had been with his daughter, "'and since the attack took place in the professor's absence from his daughter, "'I had to find out just when he left her. "'The professor had stated that at the time when he and his daughter "'were about to re-enter the laboratory,' He was met by the keeper, and held in conversation about the cutting of some wood and the poachers. Mademoiselle Stangerson was not with him then, since the professor said, I left the keeper, and rejoined my daughter, who was at work in the laboratory. It was during that short interval of time that the tragedy took place. That is certain. In my mind's eye, I saw Mademoiselle Stangerson re-enter the pavilion, go to her room to take off her hat, and find herself faced by the murderer. He had been in the pavilion for some time, waiting for her. He had arranged to pass the whole night there. He had taken off Daddy Jack's boots, he had removed the papers from the cabinet, and had then slipped under the bed. Finding the time long, he had risen, gone again into the laboratory, then into the vestibule, looked into the garden, and had seen, coming towards the pavilion, Mademoiselle Stangerson alone. He would never have dared to attack her at that hour, if he had not found her alone. His mind was made up. He would be more at ease alone with Mademoiselle Stangerson in the pavilion than he would have been in the middle of the night, with Daddy Jacques sleeping in the attic. So he shut the vestibule window. That explains why neither Mademoiselle Stangerson nor the keeper who were at some distance from the pavilion, had heard the revolver shot. Then we went back to the yellow room. Mademoiselle Stangerson came in. What passed must have taken place very quickly. Mademoiselle tried to call for help, but the man had seized her by the throat. Her hand had sought and grasped the revolver, which she had been keeping in the drawer of her night-table, since she had come to fear the threats of her pursuer. The murderer was about to strike her on the head with the mutton-bone, a terrible weapon in the hands of a Larson or a ball But she fired in time, and the shot wounded the hand that held the weapon. The bone fell to the floor, covered with the blood of the murderer, who staggered, clutched at the wall for support, imprinting on it the red marks, and fearing another bullet, fled. She saw him pass through the laboratory, and listened— HE WAS LONG AT THE WINDOW. AT length, HE JUMPED FROM IT. SHE FLEW TO IT AND SHUT IT. THE DANGER PASSED. ALL HER THOUGHTS WERE OF HER FATHER. HAD HE EITHER SEEN OR HEARD? AT ANY COST TO HERSELF, SHE MUST KEEP THIS FROM HIM. THUS, WHEN Mrs. STANGERSON RETURNED, HE FOUND THE DOOR OF THE YELLOW ROOM CLOSED, HIS DAUGHTER IN THE LABORATORY, BENDING OVER HER DESK, AT WORK. Turning towards M. Darzac, Rouletabille cried, You know the truth. Tell us, then, if that is not how things happened. I don't know anything about it, replied M. Darzac. I admire you for your silence, said Rouletabille. But if Mademoiselle Stangerson knew of your danger, she would release you from your oath. She would beg of you to tell all she has confided to you. She would be here to defend you. M. Darzac made no movement, nor uttered a word. He looked at Rouletabille sadly. "'However,' said the young reporter, "'since Mademoiselle Stangerson is not here, I must do it myself. But believe me, M. Darzac, the only means to save Mademoiselle Stangerson and restore her to her reason is to secure your acquittal.' "'What is this secret motive that compels Mademoiselle Stangerson to hide her knowledge from her father?' asked the President. "'That, monsieur, I do not know,' said Rouletabille. "'It is no business of mine.' The President, turning to M. Darzac, endeavoured to induce him to tell what he knew. "'Do you still refuse, monsieur, to tell us how you employed your time during the attempts on the life of Mademoiselle Stangerson?" I cannot tell you anything, Monsieur. The President turned to Rouletabille, as if appealing for an explanation. We must assume, Monsieur President, that Monsieur Robert Darzac's absences are closely connected with Mademoiselle Stangerson's secret, and that Monsieur Darzac feels himself in honour bound to remain silent. It may be that Larson, who since his three attempts has had everything in training to cast suspicion on M. Darzac, had fixed on just those occasions for a meeting with M. Darzac at a spot most compromising. Larson is cunning enough to have done that. The president seemed partly convinced, but still curious. He asked, "'But what is this secret of Mademoiselle Stangerson?' "'That I cannot tell you,' said Roldavy. "'I think, however, you know enough now to acquit M. Robert d'Arzac, "'unless Larson should return, and I don't think he will,' he added with a laugh. "'One question more,' said the President. "'Admitting your explanation, we know that Larson wished to turn suspicion on M. Robert d'Arzac, "'but why should he throw suspicion on Daddy Jacques also?' "'There came in the professional detective, monsieur.' who proves himself an unraveller of mysteries, by annihilating the very proofs he had accumulated. He is a very cunning man, and a similar trick had often enabled him to turn suspicion from himself. He proved the innocence of one before accusing the other. You can easily believe, monsieur, that so complicated a scheme as this must have been long and carefully thought out in advance by Larson. I can tell you that he had been long engaged in its elaboration. If you care to learn how he had gathered information, you will find that he had on one occasion disguised himself as the commissionaire between the laboratory of the sorte and M. Stangerson, of whom experiments were demanded. In this way, he had been able before the crime, on two occasions, to take stock of the pavilion— he had made up so that Daddy Jacques had not recognized him. And yet, Larsan had found the opportunity to rob the old man of a pair of old boots and a cast-off Basque cap, which the servant had tied up in a handkerchief with the intention of carrying them to a friend, a charcoal burner, on the road to Epinay. When the crime was discovered, Daddy Jacques had immediately recognized these objects as his. They were extremely compromising which explains his distress at the time when we spoke to him about them. Larson confessed it all to me. He is an artist at the game. He did a similar thing in the affair of the Crédit Universel, and in that of the gold ingots of the mint. Both these cases should be revised, since Ballmeyer or Larson has been in the Sûrte a number of innocent persons have been sent to prison. End of chapter twenty seven, Part b